Welcome to the Good You Can Do podcast, where we share tips and strategies to help you reduce waste, live a healthier life, and protect the planet for future generations. My name is Andrew Duncan, and you can find out more about this project at our website, goodyoucando.com. It's my absolute pleasure to be joined today by Sonny Bailey from Fairhaven Well. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Sonny. Thanks so much for having me. Sunny, maybe the best place to start, if you wouldn't mind, would you maybe be able to introduce yourself to the listeners so they have a, a bit of an understanding of, of who you are? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm probably most well known for my blog, the New Zealand Wealth and Risk blog. And I've been publishing on that almost roughly weekly for the last eight years, since about 2014. And talking you know, ostensibly about money, but I remember reading or listening to something that Malcolm Gladwell said. He, he said that he likes articles that are about X, but are really about Y. <laughs> and I would say that, you know, ostensibly I write about money, but it's more about decision-making and making financial and lifestyle decisions that are aligned with your values and your priorities. So that's a key kind of theme that I return to in the blog. And it's also massively relevant to the business I operate. So I operate my own business, Fairhaven Wealth, and I operate from home. And you know, when you deal with Fairhaven Wealth, you deal with me. But that's a huge theme of the conversations that I have with clients, like starting from you know just defining what wealth means to you. And it's not entirely financial. What does wealth mean to you? Can I, can I ask you that, Sonny? It's an interesting one because this is, it's a perennial question. Like there's no right or wrong answer. And the answer that I give to you right now (laughs) might be different to an answer I give to you later on in the day or in a few months time or in years to come. And I think that that's a really important thing to keep in mind. It's a perennial question and we need to keep asking ourselves that question. Um, But ultimately wealth, I mean, there's a financial component to that, but it's, but I see money and finances more as tools to to, to focus on other things. And it's really, for me, about health and relationships and ultimately feeling that I'm going to leave the world better than I found it. <laughs> really beautifully said when I was younger and trying to sort of accumulate financial assets, I guess you'd say I, wealth, I would define as how long I could survive without making any more money. <laughs> like this kind of freedom <laughs> uh, framework of thinking about wealth, but as I get older and have kids, I define wealth more as you know, how long can I go without feeling super anxious or, or, you know, how much stress do I have in my life and how present am I as a dad? So more of kind of a health and a well-being aspect to it and uh, how much am I enjoying my time? So I, I really agree with that premise that it's it's a question we need to keep asking ourselves. And that's really well put. Yeah. And what's right for you is not necessarily what's right for me. And I mean, that's one of the most special parts of that, about the conversations that I have with people. Like, you know, for some people potentially aiming to accumulate as much financial wealth as possible as a legitimate goal <laughs> um, based on their circumstances and, you know, their broader perspective of what they want. But um, it's, it's whatever's relevant to you. <laughs> one thing that comes through in all your writing, and I'd really encourage people to go and check out the blog is just how much love and thought goes into it. And it's every article of yours that I've read, it's, it's really easy to see that you think very deeply about these questions and these concepts. Uh, so it's, that's pretty rare. <laughs> There's a lot of kind of personal finance information out there on the internet, but it's uh, beautifully personal and uh, empathetic and also 
like quite like uh you know you you, you uh for one of a better phrase like you take the piss out of yourself as well like it's really cool <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it's interesting because like one of the reasons i set up in the first place or, or started writing in the first place it wasn't to get an audience it wasn't to use it to promote a business or anything of that nature it was actually just as an exercise to work out what what it, what is it that I actually think <laughs> and I mean I would say even now I'm still the main audience of the blog like I find it really rewarding going back and thinking what did you know Sunny of 2017 think about this particular topic and another reason I set it up is to expose myself to more scrutiny and I, I always think that when you put things in writing and when you put it out there for other people to read, then you're kind of opening yourself to have different perspectives or views. It makes you think through things a bit more deeply and it can enable you to add nuance. Um, one of the surprises I've had just from from blogging is that I haven't had as much pushback or challenge um, in terms of what I've written. I certainly have uh, occasionally, but I think part of that might just be the incentive structure for a reader. Like, I mean, if you're a thoughtful reader of a blog and there's something that you disagree with, you're probably more likely to just skip the move on to the next thing to actually, than to actually send a thoughtful, tactful, well-written email um, to try and correct someone of their misapprehensions. But that has always been one of the guiding lights for me. Um, one of the things I think about is I was, I was born on the 4th of July, which is an American Independence Day. <laughs> And I value independence and, by extension, intellectual honesty really highly. <laughs> you can see also in your writing that you acknowledge the counterpoint to a, an argument that you're making. So you're very good at providing both sides of the discussion and, you know, presenting, you know, w- w- how you feel about it, but also not just, it's not, it's not like one-sided writing where you're just on a soapbox presenting one, one point of view without... Uh, coloring that with with both sides of the picture as well so and that takes time and effort and and thought when you're writing so I, I really respect respect that too yeah. um, I mean and it's quite exciting isn't it like I mean there, there are so many areas of life you know or decisions that you can make where there are so much area for good faith debate and shades of right like where different people can legitimately have different views like weigh different issues in a slightly different way or have you know different ideas about what is likely to happen or won't happen. And without a crystal ball, you don't necessarily know what what is the, you know, quote unquote best sort of argument or decision to, to make. But there's often lots of great ones. And so I love having these conversations where you can think through things and you can hear different perspectives and people can push back and challenge you. And not from a trolling perspective, but from a, you know, really good faith debate, um, good good faith perspective come to to either different views or converging views as as they discuss so many successful people talk about journaling as being a healthy personal exercise and for me writing blog articles and it sounds like for you it's a very personal kind of therapeutic imagine kind of what journaling is like for for a lot of people where you're deciding for yourself how you feel about these things and writing them down and publishing them online forces you to try and get to somewhat the essence of the the yeah. topic or the argument which can be really helpful yeah i mean it's been super rewarding like i mean it it does drive a lot of the you know the the work i get through my business but i've also met so many cool amazing people i probably wouldn't be having this conversation with you <laughs> but for that but you know if, if i were to think about it in purely cost benefit terms like if, if you're doing it just for, inst- for for an instrumental reason of trying to get views or, or readers or something I don't know whether you'd be able to sustainably do it. Like I, I write because I can't not write. 
it's telling that you write these amazing articles and you're run a financial consultant business as a financial advisor and you're and you're completely booked up with clients right now. And when I was working in property, the the writing a blog with kind of educational articles for buyers and sellers was my number one source of business to the point where I was maxed out. And so I would suggest to if you're out there and you're, you know, you're an entrepreneur, you're running your own kind of business in some sense, and and you you don't mind writing or you like it uh, from this in of two, that's a can be a fantastic way to draw clients to whatever you're whatever you're doing. Uh, and it's a really nice way to do it because you're just giving information for free and people can contact you if they want to. So it's a, it's a nice approach and I certainly found it to be a, a fantastic way to, to build a business. And I was going to ask you a little bit about, about Fairhaven Wealth, but first, the first question might be, what inspired you to start that? What inspired you to get into this whole world of financial advice in the first place? Because you used to be a lawyer, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I just just want to add to to the writing thing. Like, I mean, if, if you're that way inclined, it's awesome. And I'm not sure what your experience was, but um, I find it amazing, like partially because it attracts good people, not just for work, but like just people to get to know. But it kind of filters for the, you know, the quote unquote right people. And I'm not saying right <laughs> in general, but the people who are right for me or that, you know, resonate with my writing. And that's, you know, a great thing about blogging or, or as even as a reader looking through lots of sources, even if, you know, ostensibly it's about the same topic, different people come from different perspectives and have different views, different presuppositions, biases, prejudices, incentives, <laughs> different audiences as well. And so finding someone who resonates with you so much that you actually want to contact with them is just really valuable and rewarding from both ends, I think. So right. And you're going to end up with clients that are happier and, and get the kind of mm. service they're looking for. And you'll have the kind of clients that you like to help. Mm. That makes so much sense. Yeah. And I mean, just going back to your blog, like, I mean, I, I loved your blog and it resonated with me. And I think one of the things that struck me, and I know you don't really do this nowadays, but it, it really struck me that there was a real sense of intellectual honesty and you weren't there to, you know, pushing to sell specific strategies or anything, there was a degree to which you were being really open and honest. And I think you would have attracted a certain type of client or readership that might've otherwise been put off, but that's fine. You know, they'll, they'll find their own audience as well. Thank you. Yeah. That absolutely was the experience that I had. It gave people a window into, into what I was like. So they already felt a level of connection to me when I would go and visit them at their house and they'd never met me before, but they kind of felt like they knew me a little bit, at least knew how I felt about certain topics. And they might've read parts that described, you know, that I was, you know, a husband and where I lived and where I'd grown up. And and it just gives you a a nice level of rapport that starts that relationship off with a little bit of an understanding of what your values are and how you feel about things, which is really nice for people to just make them feel a little bit more comfortable, right? Because it can be pretty scary calling a real estate agent to come around to your house and they think they're going to they're gonna try and force you to sign a whole bunch of stuff and do a whole lot of things you don't want to do. Yeah, absolutely. Same, you know, as a financial planner or advisor, like, I mean, it's such a privilege. Like people share information with me that I know that they don't necessarily share with like close friends or family members. And, you know, it's, it's, it's such a privilege, you know, and it's such a relationship of trust and candor and, you need to kind of start that relationship as well as you possibly can. 
and you can see so with your service what's really unique is that you uh, for, for clients that that are lucky enough to have you you have a fixed fee service and that's very unusual in the kind of financial world right where it's, it's very open it's very transparent how you charge there's you don't operate with a whole lot of commissions on products that you sell or percentages of people's assets under management and it's more just a I guess what one might say like a not traditional in the financial sense, but a traditional kind of advice model where you're, where you're paying for someone, paying for your time, paying for yeah. your service and feel like that's so needed in the financial world. And I wish there were more, yeah. more people aligned like that. Yeah. And, 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 and so do I, like, I, I don't consider, you know, I, I get a lot of people contacting me asking about how to get into the advice industry and, and things like that. Um, and, you know, funnily enough, I wrote a long article about that because <laughs> I was having the same conversations, but I, I don't consider it to be competition at all. Like I, I want as many people to be in the industry providing great quality advice as, as possible. Like I, I don't think of it as a, as a fixed pie i think the more people there are that can provide excellent advice to people the the better <laughs> it, it means a lot to me that i want to leave not only the world but even this industry even better than i found it so would that drive to leave the industry better than you found it and and you know you are so keen to help people how do you also at the same time maintain space in your life you know how do you protect your time when you're in such yeah. high demand how do you uh, correlate yeah. those two kind of drivers well i mean I, I can link that to the other question which i completely ignored <laughs> which is in terms of setting up the business and it fitting was. it in with my background so it's a combination of my own personal circumstances and my own goals and what i want out of life and so you know i i Fairhaven Wealth basically started the first day that my son started school or primary school. It was a pretty cool um, kind of line in the sand <laughs> in, in terms of that. And so, you know, th there's an aspect to which my circumstances dictated what I wanted to do. And so basically, I wanted to set up a business where I could work from home. And, you know, I'm super fortunate. We live across the road from the primary school. <laughs> and I wanted and needed flexibility to be able to work around the children. Like I'm in a fortunate position where my wife works in a pretty well-paid role. And one of the challenges with her role is it's very hard for her to take time off work. She will see dozens of people in a day. And if she needs to take time off work to either run some errands for the kids or if the children are sick, it's very difficult for her to do that. So I needed to prioritize flexibility with, with respect to to what I did so there there is an extent to which my ability to organize or manage my time is a direct reflection of the fact that I had to <laughs> set up a business that enabled me to do that structurally and just relating to my goals that was just another thing like for me that is one of my values or priorities that I do want to have flexibility and in the words of of one of my friends Rich Meadows <laughs> optionality uh, in terms of what opportunities I can take advantage of. Um, Did you have yeah, to train yourself to kind of say no? Or was that something that happened pretty quick or was it a, a long-term process to learn to? <laughs> no, 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 <laughs> no. Um, it's really hard and it still is really hard. Like personality-wise, I think I want to say yes to everything. And I think that that was actually really adaptive, you know, at certain phases of my life, saying yes to kind of any opportunity that you can kind of jump at or that, that presents itself. It's still something I struggle with. Like for me, saying no 
especially to, you know, a thoughtful, very reasonable request is really hard because I mean, you know, I've, I've got a friend who used to say, you know, I want to be brutally honest. And I used to tell him like, you know, you can just be honest <laughs> rather than brutal. <laughs> so, you know, to be able to say no in a tactful, you know, nice way takes bandwidth for me. It takes time and a bit of energy, uh, both emotional and intellectual to, to say no. And I actually find it's, it can be a vicious cycle when I am my busiest that's often the time when it's hardest for me to say no so it's something that just with some self-knowledge I've learned that I have to kind of manage and be as front-footed as I possibly can and you know that includes some structuring of my weeks to kind of map out my obligations and my commitments over the coming days and weeks to know where my capacity is and again this is a privilege that I have in terms of having my own business where I can just update my website and say, like, as I currently speak, I just updated my website a few days ago and it literally says I'm not taking on client new clients for the foreseeable future. And I've tried to make it friendlier than I have in the past. <laughs> People can put in their, their name and details and basically I'll get back to them if and when I can. And if and when they find somebody, if, if they find somebody else in the meantime, that's awesome. But, you know, just being upfront about that and as proactive as I can is what I try to do. One metaphor that works for me is, is the idea of time craters and that you might have a little meteorite that comes down and hits the earth and it creates a crater that is way bigger than that actual meteorite was in the first place. And that's often the way a lot of commitments that we say yes to are. They, they seem like small things, but once you factor in everything that surrounds it, it ends up being a much bigger commitment than you might have thought in the first place. I can so relate to so much of what you've just what you just said. And for me, I've been spending a lot of time lately thinking about how I've got various projects that I'm involved in. And in a normal week, when they're all running kind of normally, I do feel like I've got space around those. And, and there's part of me that wants to say yes to things than when they come up. But what you forget is that if any one of those things in your life needs more of your time, it's going to fill you up, right? If suddenly your children need more of your time or you're going away on a trip or one of your projects has a really important milestone coming up or a really big challenge that comes up, suddenly you will be completely full. So it's been hard for me to adjust to this idea that the ideal is being not completely booked up. <laughs> the ideal is being 60, 70% um, yeah. at capacity, knowing that there'll be some weeks when I'm at full capacity just because someone gets sick or, you know, I need to really help a friend out who's going through uh, something important right now. And keeping that space available is challenging when you're so driven to build in ideas of success and adding value yeah. to society and giving back and being useful to people and kind of overachieving. Totally. And these things will happen. Like <laughs> It's inevitable if you're, if you're living the full catastrophe of a rich life then things are going to pop up and take up more time than you kind of anticipated. You know, there's that saying that man plans and God laughs. And there's, there's a flip side to it as well. Like you need to have capacity to be able to address, you know, these things that will inevitably pop up. But I'm reminded of, of a quote from the late like Amos Tversky, who did a lot of work with Dan, Daniel Kahneman, who's well known for, you know, a lot of work in biases and heuristics. And Amos Tversky would say, you can waste years by not being able to waste hours. And I often call it as just kind of rabbit hole time. Like, I think it's sometimes really important and valuable for me, at least, to go down rabbit holes and to look at things that might not have any instrumental value per se, but 
sometimes, man, you can you can find gold and things that you can use in your day-to-day life or you know other projects or opportunities that you might not otherwise have come up come across so you know building that slack in your life is both important from a defense point of view as well as an attack point of view and and just going back to that idea of just building optionality into your life i'm so interested in this idea personally having been on a journey of creating more space in my life over the last couple of years i've been able to discover exactly what you're talking about uh that you know i really love gardening and i i I get this mental (laughs) health boost just by being outside and stirring compost bins or uh, sowing seeds or just could be anything do you Uh, believe that like 20 years ago (laughs) not at all i used to up until you know years ago i used to pay people religiously to mow my lawns and i guess what it's shown me is there's so much value in creating that space but I also see with my friends and and peer group in general that so many of the people I know that are in a similar stage in life are I don't want to say trapped but limited by the societal expectation that we should all work 60 hours a week and well at least 40 but it often works out to be 50 or 60 and there isn't a lot of space and a lot of careers to to be a little bit more aligned with making space in your life so many people I know are working really really hard and just trying to survive and creating space for themselves to explore passions and things just can feel a million miles away such a hard one isn't it I mean and my wife and I were talking about this just the other day like how you know there's quite a bit of research that kind of indicates that happiness is is u-shaped over the course of a lifetime where the age that, that both of us are I don't know how old you are but like you know late 30s early to mid to late 40s tends to be the the period where people kind of are the lowest ebb of their life satisfaction and then it eventually starts going up up and up as you get older so I guess one theme that I often find myself returning to both for myself and with my clients is that life has seasons and life life has many chapters and you know I guess it's relevant to you and your gardening you know there's a chapter of your life where it wasn't of any interest to you um whereas this season or chapter it is and so that's relevant and it's it's one of those challenging things to manage and I guess it's one of those perennial aspects of asking those right questions for you which then inform the decisions that you make yeah because there, there were people at our age and stage that are you know we're kind of at that point where we're the sandwich generation <laughs> where we're dealing with you know often young children and we're also starting to see often the the older generation becoming um, aging and maybe becoming a little bit more vulnerable and that takes up bandwidth emotional energy and mental capacity and then you know it's often the time where we have the most responsibilities or or a lot of responsibilities professionally and on top of that you know there's there's often the sense that you know once you reach this point in life you've made a lot of the big commitments that you'll make and you can always change them but a lot of these commitments including what decisions we've made professionally are fairly well embedded and you know this is the time where people start actually thinking about retirement (laughs) in detail and that can add a whole lot of additional stress thinking how much you might need in order to live a comfortable life for as long as you can live the season's point is such a valid one so i'm 37 to answer the the question before and i've got a four-year-old and a two-year-old and when our two-year-old girl was born i was getting really burnt out and I needed to step back and take some time off. And I wanted to be really present as a as a dad and be around to help Anna, my wife, just to have a life where we could be in our pajamas at nine o'clock eating breakfast with the kids and just not be in a rush all the time. Mm. And I know that leading up to that, I put so much pressure on myself to realize this definition of wealth 
largely around the 4% rule, where not only did I have to save an amount of money, which meant we could withdraw 4% of that capital every year and survive forever, but we also put this expectation on myself that having grown up reading you know, the four-hour work week, that I had to create another business, which took one day a week, and that was going to cover our living expenses. So I, I had to I had to tick it off both ways. And until I achieved those things, I couldn't allow myself to relax. So even when I left my full-time job behind and our, and our child was born, I was furiously down in the basement trying to create this four-hour work week business. <laughs> Rather than just taking a step back and saying, okay, this value, this being a parent, focusing on that right now is really important. Can we afford to take a year off and do that? Or how could we align our finances? How could we minimize our expenses to, to make that work? Would that work? Could we do that for two years? Understanding that I'm only 37, my wife's younger than me, like, well, of course, we're going to make more money in our lives. There's going to be plenty of opportunity for that. Rather than I fell into this, it's crazy to think I fell into this trap of thinking almost like, no, I need my retirement savings sorted now. <laughs> <laughs> to allow myself this small respite from a crazy working life to optimize for parenting time. Oh my gosh, you've said so many things today. I'd like to follow up on. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there are just so many different directions I want to go based on what you've said there. I, I think I'm about five years ahead of you in terms of age and in terms of the age of my children as well, um, similarly spaced and similarly when I had them. And I guess one thing I just want to to note is that going back to that chapters and seasons theme, I have a very similar conversation with almost all of my clients <laughs> who are at your age and stage. What, what I do find is that people with young children often beat themselves up about their financial position. And I think that that's natural and it's an easy thing to do. I mean, especially if you've gone from the experience of being, you know, double income, no kids, no kind of little responsibilities attached to that. And then you often go to the situation of being single income with kids. So from dinks to sick, (laughs) Um, with all the additional challenges and obligations associated with parenthood, like it's a real transitional period and it takes time and it's not, not easy. And I promise you it gets easier (laughs) Um, as the kids get older. But, you know, a lot of people have the same expectations for how they're going to be doing financially for what they were doing in the previous chapter of their lives. And I don't think that that's necessarily realistic. You know, some people can do that and or some people are in a position where that's okay. But the vast majority of people, I mean, the reality is you're going through a major life transition your financial situation is going to be different. I know how much childcare costs. And if you don't do that, like the, the impact that it can have in other financial ways, life has chapters. And one of the analog, um, metaphors I often think of is that we go through periods of time where we have headwinds and tailwinds. And you know, when you're done double income, no kids, that might be a period where you've got tailwinds, like you're riding your bike and the wind's at your back. And you can go really quick, really fast. You know, there'll be other times in life where you might have tailwinds, when you're empty nesters, when you've repaid the mortgage, when you don't have the same insurance obligations, and you can really make the most of your situation. But there are, and there will be times in your life where you'll have headwinds. (laughs) And one of the perfect illustrations of that is the period of time where you're making that transition from not having kids to having kids. And I think that, 
a lot of this beating themselves up that happens comes to just not adjusting financial expectations over that period of time. Because at the end of the day, most people will get to that point. A lot of people will get to that point of, of having tailwinds later on. And it will be predicated on the hard work you put in when you're facing these headwinds. So that's something, just a message that I, I find myself having to communicate quite regularly and just seeing your financial position, not just where it is right now or where you are, but seeing it within the broader context of your life and the journey of your life, both financial and otherwise. Another thing that I want to just add is like, you know, congratulations for you for being in that position of, I guess, being able to, but also making that decision to take the time off and take the pedal off the metal, I guess, you know, and that, that's, that's this other broader conversational thing to think about is like, what type of inheritance do you want to leave? <laughs> like people so often think of inheritance in terms of, you know, money or stuff you get when someone dies, but it's so much more than that. Like you inherit memories and experiences, a sense of home and security um, and wisdom and knowledge. And for a lot of people, it's a really legitimate decision to realize, you know, I don't want to necessarily end up with the most financial wealth at the end of the day or end up being the richest guy or girl in the cemetery. But I want to make some trade-offs and decisions so that I can be as present during this really special time of my life, an important time of my life for my children. And, you know, that's, again, a perennial question, like what inheritance do you want to leave? I mean, that's informed some of the, a lot of the decisions that I've made personally, both professionally and financially, and will continue to, to do so. Yeah, so those are just a couple of things I want to say about children. There was another question that you asked. Um, while you while you think on that, I was just going to add the. I, it's in, there's an interesting phenomenon I see where um, a lot of my peer group will have worked really hard. They've got these tailwinds and headwinds, and you know they've got kids and they've they've got a house, and almost immediately there's the switch to, I want to build up an inheritance for my mm. kids. Like I was speaking to a friend the other day who just brought an investment property and their goal around this was they wanted to leave something to their kids who are tiny, right? And they're yeah. still, this family's still very, very young. And my point was that's thinking so far ahead. Like a much earlier goal would be to just consider how you can take care of yourself and your immediate family right now and in the near future and, and maybe long-term how you can set yourself up to not be a burden on your children. But the, the the leaving an inheritance thinking about that at our age just seems so crazy like as someone who grew up in a family without inheritances i see so much more value in inheriting unconditional love than any monetary benefit which i probably would have blown knowing the 21 year old me like i was importing fancy race cars and you know, was, I was just did, did you write about like a batmobile or something yeah i bought it a batmobile just, I just the stupidest stuff like if you had handed me any form of serious money when i was 21 years old i would have absolutely wasted it um so <laughs> i guess that i just find that surprising that people put these expectations on themselves that as soon as i tick the box of buying a house i've got to suddenly set up my kids inheritance mm which is almost like a societal expectation, but it's almost a bit of a trap, right? Because then if you're, if you're thinking about kids' inheritance when you're in your 30s and early 40s, that train never stops. Like, how, how are you going to allow yourself to take some time off or embrace this seasonal approach to uh, looking at your life through a, sets of, a set of chapters? 
So I feel like there's there's often these expectation traps that we can fall into, uh, which can really narrow down our options artificially. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so fascinating because like it, that transition to parenthood, like it does change your identity and it does change your priorities and the way you think about the world. Like, remember somebody used the metaphor of it's, it's like being turned into a vampire. Like you don't know what it's like to be a vampire ahead of time, <laughs> but eventually you'll change into a different person. <laughs> but, you know, and, and it's interesting, like just even from my professional trajectory, like that I, I started off as a financial services lawyer and after having my son, my, our first child, I got a lot more, I got really interested in estate planning. <laughs> and so that was kind of the next kind of transition. And that was, I don't think that would have happened had I not been um, become a dad. So I became a lot more sensitive or open to, to, to this sort of thinking. And, you know, it is interesting. Like I, I've had quite a few clients recently where, you know, one of their big financial goals or objectives is they want to help their kids and, you know, the property market, you know, making sure that they can get onto the property market is really important to them. And so, you know, there have been situations where I have actually recommended a rental property. And one of the reasons for that is to hedge on behalf of their children. And it's less about financial returns, but it's about making financial decisions directly in line with what their goals are. And, you know, if property prices continue to increase, you know, at the rate they have historically, or at least in the last few decades, then it's awesome. They'll have heaps of equity with which to help their children. And, you know, if property prices don't increase, the one consolation is they won't need to help out the children as much. So it links in with their goals. And again, this is one of those like really rich areas for good faith debate. Like, you know, what, what sort of society do you want to live in? You know, having kids puts this into to really start contrast. Like, do you, do you believe in maybe not so equality so much, but equality of opportunity? And, you know, to, to what extent is it beneficial to leave enormous amounts of money to future generations? And again, there's no, you know, right or wrong, but it really comes down to, to what you want. Like I've, I've got clients who want to leave huge amounts to, to future generations. And I've got other clients who are very wealthy who don't think it's, it's healthy for, from their perspective. And, you know, these are financial decisions that they're making that reflect their own sense of values and ethics and, you know, the world they want to, to live in and be in. Yeah. It's really fascinating how just talking about something as seemingly boring as money can get into really deep, and meaningful and interesting conversations by all means and it's, and it's really something I, I personally believe we should do more of love to have more of those good faith debates with with people around me and flesh out those values uh, which will be different for each person and mm-hmm. help us like you and i do with the writing like help us define what's important to ourselves through verbalizing that and talking yeah. to it and hearing different perspectives and different yeah. ideas I mean, that's, that's one thing I would challenge, like for anyone like re- who, who, who reads a lot, you know, whether that's online or, you know, in any other way, like when, when you're reading, you know, and that includes me, includes you <laughs> or anyone else, like try and look at where people are coming from and what their presuppositions are, where their biases are and how different people who might hold similar views might differ, you know, and it, in some ways it could be really hard because, you know, there's this narcissism of small differences, like, you know, the barefoot investor often, I think I write about them negatively quite often, but I think fundamentally we're the same <laughs> in terms of spirit and, and what we actually want to achieve. But because 
we're so similar. I see the differences so intensely, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a really useful exercise to see where different people come from. And just sometimes they might agree with you, but they're way, way different factors differently. I think you can really add value in that space, right? Like, so there's an article you wrote, which I'll link to in the show notes uh, called the myopia of compound interest, where you take this idea that the barefoot investor presents and really analyze it a lot deeper. And to my mind, give people that are coming to this kind of knowledge a little bit later, a lot of hope that all is not lost if they weren't saving a buckload of money when they were 20 years old, when you know, how many of us were responsible to save a lot of money when we were 15 to 24. Um, but I just, I, I love the way that uh, it, it, I don't think it diminishes the learning from the barefoot investor, but it really adds to it and takes it a step further and provides more clarity and hope and, and understanding. Mm. So I think you can point out the shortcomings in something and help develop that learning while still being somewhat aligned with what with yeah. what the, 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 the barefoot investor was trying to achieve in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I love what he's doing to, to, to a large extent. And I think we're both, you know, very similar in the sense that we are very independent minded and we're not really, we're definitely not about selling products or strategies or anything like that. And in fact, you know, in some ways we're probably similar in the sense we kind of see ourselves as bouncers to try and protect people against individuals and organizations that are like that. <laughs> That's all for part one, folks. Thanks for listening. I'll get part two finished and upload it as soon as I can so you can hear the rest of this financial freedom deep dive with the one and only Sunny Bailey. For links to everything discussed in the show, feel free to check the show notes uh, and I'll have links to Sunny's website and where you can find more details about him. Take care.